Good morning. It is good to see you today. If you'd open your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to be looking at a final week uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Hopefully, as we come to the end of this chapter, you see there's a lot more to this chapter than maybe what's put on a wedding bulletin or a picture frame um, that, that this, is, this chapter is packed with the reality of love in the Christian life and the implications of love in the Christian life. For instance, in verses 1 to 3, we have seen that spiritual gifts without love are empty. Verses 1 to 3 is specifically talking about spiritual gifts. And as great as those spiritual gifts may seem, apart from love, they're nothing. In fact, those who practice spiritual gifts without love aren't doing anyone a favor. How many times have you thought to yourself, man, does does anybody see all that I'm doing? Does anybody realize how I'm serving Well, you know, when we get that attitude, we're actually not doing the the favor we think we're doing to people because it's not done in love. In verses 4 to 6, the Scriptures answer the question, okay, if love is so important, then what are we talking about when we hear the word love? And in the next three verses, verses 4 to 6, we see love described. We saw last week how, how far we fall short of the biblical ideal of love. But lest we leave discouraged in that reality, ultimately, verses 4 to 6, I believe, perfectly describe the person of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus Christ is, in the positive affirmations of love, and who he is not in the negative aspects of what love is not. Verses 4 to 6 describe the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus and Jesus alone is perfect love, perfect truth personified in these verses. You want a portrait of the reality of verses 4 to 6? or or, excuse me, verses 4 to 7, you want a perfect portrait of of what what those characteristics are in a person? It's Jesus. In fact, as uh, I shared with you, as one individual said, Jesus is love in the flesh. And now this week, we're going to finish out chapter 13 by looking at the permanence of or the endurance of love. Another indicator why love is so important. You see, this passage that we're looking at in verses 8 to 13, it's going to reveal to us that the one characteristic that will carry us all the way through to eternity is love. Again, not a mushy-gushy type love, not an undefined love, but a love that chapter 13 has already described for us. 
It is love that carries us all the way through to eternity. Love is to be a reality in our lives because love displays the very heart of God. Like 1 John says, God is love. In fact, we saw the the video about Rebecca and how she was a widow through through her husband and wife dying in the fire. You want to know a perfect uh, verse that describes the heart of God? It's James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. We see that God is love because God extends his heart to the most lowly of people, those who cannot help themselves. We see that in the context of the book of James with orphans and widows, but you know, God's love spiritually has extended to all of us who are helpless and, and dead in our sins. So this morning, we're going to look at aspect number three in our text regarding Christian love love's endurance and what we are going to see for a final time in chapter 13 this reality that we must get back to the basics of love we're going to see that what we must cling to that truly matters is a christ-like love if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, no matter what your temperament, no matter what your personality, no matter what your circumstances in life are, you are called to love like Jesus. Let's pray, and we are going to get into our text. We're going to see in verses 8 to 13 how love endures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing it has been to worship you in song, to be able to sing the reality, to sing the truths of Scripture to you, first and foremost, in worship, but also, Lord, to each other. As this, the truths of Scripture, they're not just a truth for our individual lives. They are truths that we hold together as your people And Lord, this reality of love, it is both a vertical understanding of your great love for us and our love for you, but it is also uh, a horizontal reality, Lord, that you call us to love each other. Lord, it would be so much easier so many times if we just remained in our little private circle where love would never be challenged or people would not sometimes rub us the wrong way or make this reality of love difficult. But Lord, we know that if we just live in our bubble of one or two or three, that our love is a tainted self-love. So Father, I thank you that we can bask first and foremost in your love for us. But then, Lord, we can practice that love with one another to mirror your heart to the people around us. 
And Father, would you show us today the primacy of love and that love always endures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love endures. This morning we're going to look at three reasons why love endures from verses 8 to 13. And I want us to start reading. We're, just, we're going to read verses 8 to 10. Follow along with me. The scriptures say, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What we are seeing here, the first reason why love endures, the first point that Paul makes here is that we know that love endures because that which is partial will indeed pass away. There are certain things that are eternal and there are certain things that are temporal. And Paul in verse 8 gives us a great contrast that love stands eternal. In fact, verse 8, love never ends. Paul's talking here, look, talking about love, looking into the future, that love never ends. But man, before we even get to what Paul is, is saying regarding love never ending in the context of, of time pushing forward, I think we can pause there and realize that, you know, true Christian love in our relationships should never end. Is love really love if we say we're going to love someone up to a certain point? Is love really love if we say, okay, you did this one more time, I'm going to cease loving you. Now don't get me wrong, in situations, abusive situations, situations where there is continual harm being done, whatever that may look like, love is not just to overlook that and to say, I'm just going to continue to be abused or whatever. Love does take action. But the spirit of love is what never ends. That though I may have to distance myself from certain people or certain situations when harm is involved... Through the power of Christ, I'm not going to let myself get embittered to them. I may have to change circumstances, but that is not going to stop the reality that they too must be loved. But Paul says here, love never ends. Love stands eternal. Another way you could translate that word ends is love never falls. Think of a large structure and it comes crumbling to the ground. It's done. 
When you think of the, the, the uh, trade towers in 9-11, and, and, and either you remember watching it live, or if you're younger, um, you, you've seen video clips, and man, that sh- those two structures, they just crumble. Love never falls. That's the idea here, a picture of a structure crumbling to the ground. Love never fails. It never becomes invalid. Love is eternal. Why? Because God is love and God is eternal. Now Paul is going back to what he stated in verses 1 to 3 when he talks about how much greater love is than spiritual gifts. That if spiritual gifts are void of of love, it's nothing. I mean, imagine making a cake, and I'm not, I I, I jumped into this one uh, because I'm not a cook, but imagine making a cake with no eggs. I I know there's some recipes maybe where you can do that at one point in time. I think some companies tried to make it. You don't even need eggs and it didn't sell, so now they say you need at least a couple eggs. Um, But imagine that key ingredient in whatever it is you like to bake or make. But you say, I'm going to take out that foundational ingredient. Maybe it's this Thanksgiving, and I'm going to serve it to my family. Happy Thanksgiving. Well, this tastes a little different. Oh, yeah, I, I I left out the cranberries in my cranberry sauce. That is what it's like to exercise, according to Scripture, to exercise spiritual gifts without love. But isn't love one of the main things to go in our Christian service? Isn't it? We start to do things out of of pure duty, and it's good to do things out of duty, right? I mean, you're a mom, I don't feel like feeding my kids today, I just don't have that love bubbling up within me. No, you do it because it's a duty, and in that duty you are showing love. But at the same time, it's so easy for duty, for what other people think, for all of these other things to replace love, and here we are like a Thanksgiving meal, serving without the key ingredients. That's what this passage is talking about. And Paul, now in ending chapter 13, goes back to what he's saying in verses 1 to 3 regarding spiritual gifts. But he takes a different angle on this. Verses 1 to 3, practicing spiritual gifts without love. Verses 8 to 10, love the the eternality of love versus the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. You see, love stands eternal, but spiritual gifts will not last. At least spiritual gifts as we know them this side of eternity. Now, I believe that in the new heavens, the new earth, we are going to be serving God according to our wiring we're not just going to be sitting on a, on a perpetual cloud. We're going to be serving God according to our wiring. Not sure how all that's going to look like. Um, so it, so th- there's going to be a carrying over from this age to the next. But spiritual gifts are not going to be exercised as we know them. Verse 8 says, As, as for prophecies, 
What will happen to them? They will pass away. The first spiritual gift Paul talks about here are prophecies. What's going to happen to prophecies? It will pass away. This word, pass away, it is a word that Paul has repeatedly used in 1 Corinthians. It's a word dealing with eschatology or end time events. That there is coming the breaking in of the new, and when that new is fully here, these things will pass away. If you have your Bible handy, I want you to turn over to chapter 1 and verse 28 just to give you a few examples of, of how this word is used in the New Testament. In chapter 1 and verse 28, it says, God has chosen what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, and here's the word, to bring to nothing. That's the word pass away. To bring to nothing things that are. In chapter 2 and verse 6, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to, there you see it, pass away. So there are rulers in this age. But the kingdoms of this age will one day pass away. As a Christian, uh, you know, as, as Dennis prayed, we want to go out and we want to vote. In fact, we even have uh, voter guides if you're curious about issues, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I go there and I don't even know uh, who these guys, some of these guys are. Um, so grab one, you know, vote. But man, don't get caught up as if this is, this is the whole purpose of your role as a Christian. We are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. No matter what happens Tuesday or what happens in two years, that is not going to change spiritual reality. The rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. Jump over to chapter 6 and verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for, the food, for food, and God will destroy, that's the same word, pass away, God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, the eating, the stomach, food, are temporal contexts in the way that the Corinthians were being gluttonous in living for the stomach. They were not living for that which is eternal. These things will be destroyed. We could keep going. I just want to take you uh, to two other places. Um, looking ahead in chapter 15, we haven't gotten there yet. You know chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians is the resurrection chapter. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, that's the same word, after making every rule and every authority and power pass away. 
is another way you could read that. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed or to pass away is death. So say, Pastor Adam, why do you show us all of these things? As we look at verse 8, prophecies, they will pass away in the age to come. And Paul is building an argument here, and that's why we, we, we emphasize it, and I'll, I'll put this together as we move along. But not only prophecy, but also tongues. It says tongues will cease. Now Paul mentions here, he highlights prophecy and tongues because of what he's going to say in chapter 14, dealing with prophecy and tongues. For some reason, the, the Corinthian church, they were all striving after this gift of tongues. And it just seemed to kind of bolster themselves up that, man, if, if they exercise this gift, that, that they're going to uh, look good and there's prominence. And even with prophecy, Paul says, listen, this is to be done orderly. But these are the two gifts that he is going to highlight in this next chapter that Pastor Dennis is going to be speaking on. And he actually tells the Corinthian church to, to, to pursue prophecy, but they have to realize that both prophecy and tongues will cease. Just as it's really interesting that pass away has to deal with, with that kind of eschatology, um, Christ's coming back context, this word pass away or cease in different places in the New Testament talks about Jesus, for instance, getting in Peter's boat to teach the people. And he says, when he had ceased speaking, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 13, um, the, 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 the Jews are accusing, the, uh, accusing Stephen. And it says, this man never ceases to speak concerning words against the holy place and the law. And it's, I just find it interesting that Paul says in this context in chapter 8, tongues will cease. It's almost the idea that the tongue that is speaking will one day stop speaking. So are we really going to put all of our eggs in a basket of something that will pass away? And then Paul talks about this third gift of knowledge that it will pass away as well. And here again, the same exact word that's used dealing with prophecies, that these things are destined to end. So this great contrast between love and spiritual gifts, these spiritual gifts that will have an end. But not only do we see a great contrast why do we see a great contact, contrast? Why is because we are dealing with what is partial versus what is complete. Again, Paul says, for we know in part, verse 9, and we prophesy in part. So as believers exercise spiritual gifts, 
There is a partial knowledge, Paul is saying, when it comes to this gift of prophecy. In fact, if you look in verses 1 to 3, if you look at verse 2, he's talking about this exaggerated um, gift. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and and all knowledge, here you see prophecy and knowledge put together, and if I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Paul's saying, even if you had such a great gift of prophecy that you understood everything, without love you would be nothing, and the reality that with whatever spiritual gift we are exercising, is that all of these spiritual gifts are done in part. I mean, listen, even when we're showing love this side of eternity, isn't it a partial love? I mean, it can be an enduring love and we're, we're, we're truly loving others, but, but because we are confined right now to these bodies of flesh, and we deal with sin, we are still affected by the fall until Jesus comes. Everything we do is tainted. And there's not a possible way that we could have a full concept of all eternity this side of eternity. So as the Spirit gives a word to an individual and they prophesy, Paul says even that is done in part. There is no complete knowledge this side of eternity. But then you contrast verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The perfect is coming. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by the perfect? What is the perfect? Well, is it when Jesus came as a baby? Yeah, he was perfect, right? Well, we know it's not that because Paul is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit after Jesus has already come, right? He, he came uh, he lived the perfect life we could not live. He died for us. He rose again. So it can't be that. You see, the context of what Paul is talking about, especially using these words dealing with things that will one day pass away, the perfect is the arrival of the age to come. When Jesus comes again and the new age has arrived, the new, eternal, uh, refined heavens and earth. When that which is perfect is come, all that is partial will pass away. I mean, imagine this. There, there's, there, there's not going to be any more trees that rot. We had partial tree blow down yesterday uh, and, and all that wind gust. There's not going to be any more decaying dead flowers. 
You know, those are all things characteristic of a fallen age. But then on a higher level, there will no longer be even incomplete gifts that God uses to edify his church. The partial will one day pass away. Now you may say, Pastor Adam, I kind of get what what Scripture is saying here, um, but it's still a little fuzzy, and, and that's really good because Paul now brings in two illustrations of what he's talking about. You see, we can know that love endures because, number one, the partial will pass away. But number two, we can know that love endures, according to this text, because one day we will fully see and know. And we're not going to need other people to reveal spiritual truth because we will see with our own eyes, hear with our own ears. Isn't that exciting? So what's Paul talking about with this idea that, that these spiritual gifts will one day pass away in contrast to love that's eternal? Okay, Paul's giving two illustrations. Let's look at these. Number one, there's an illustration of a child. And again, just like in verses 1 to 3, Paul uses himself as an example. Paul says, if I, you know, speak in tongues of men or angels but have not love, once again, he uses himself as an example. And he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, we often think of of verse 11 in a negative context. You know, kind of like, you know, you can say to your kid, you know, grow up! You shouldn't be doing that anymore. And and there is truth to that. I mean, man, if if you've been a, a, a believer, a follower of Jesus for years and years and years, and for instance, you're kind of still struggling with, you know, is the book of Nahum an Old Testament book or a New Testament book? I mean, you know, there needs to be growth. There needs to be a growing of scriptural understanding and a growing in our relationship with the Lord. But yet, verse 11 is not really being spoken in a negative context. But in an age-appropriate context. I'll show you what I mean. We see a couple characteristics of a child that Paul uh, brings out. The first characteristic is incomplete speech. Paul says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. Now, how many of you have ever said to a three-year-old boy who's trying to talk, come on, use bigger words. You sound so uneducated. You ever do that? I saw one hand. (laughs) In fact, when we go to the doctor for, for like Sammy, for his annual checkups, uh, and for our other kids, there's always like, uh, we go in Wellsboro to uh, Dr. Clark. Rachel goes. I went once and uh, I had somebody that kept asking me questions and I was so intimidated because I didn't have the answers. I said, Rachel, you got to take the kids. 
<laughs> um, anyway, when, when uh, we go to the doctor, there's always like this yellow piece of paper, especially for the kids, like when they're like, I don't know, one to four or whatever, and it has like this checklist of stuff. Like, is your child, you know, at, you know like one, their one-year appointment maybe, are they grabbing things? Are they making sounds? You know, do they follow people around the room with their eyes? You know, each year you go there, the, the checklist is, is a little bit more and more. Are they starting to say, to say words as they get older? When we go to those checkups, we say, yes, they are starting to say mama or dada. But it's done in an age-appropriate manner. It's never, well, why aren't they at one year old saying complete sentences? What's going on here? Are they a little developmentally slow? No, it is expected for a child to have incomplete speech, but yet speech appropriate for where they are at in life. And this is what Paul is saying. That when I was a child, of course I would speak like a child. Not only incomplete speech, but Paul speaks of incomplete knowledge because it also says, I thought like a child. One of my favorite ages with kids is, you know, around that four to five year old age because they really can communicate back with you, but their reasoning, reasoning is so funny. And, and you can just even like go on these rabbit trails with kids and follow their line of thinking and their imagination. And it just sounds so funny. But what that is, is it's thinking like a child. And it is appropriate for a child to think in the way that they do. Again, none of us are having logical arguments with a four-year-old. Sometimes as parents, if you're a parent, maybe you've tried it, and it just makes you pull your hair out. Why? Because they are at the stage of life where they think like a child. Not only do they have incomplete knowledge, but they have incomplete reasoning skills. I reasoned like a child. So, you know, why, why do you want that cookie? Well, because I'm hungry. Well, you're going to eat in two minutes. That's great. I want the cookie still. I mean, I still reason that way as well. <laughs> but a child's reasoning is so often entertaining. But yet they are reasoning according to the level that they are at. But then Paul transitions and he talks about growth into manhood. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So there is an age appropriateness to speaking like a child, thinking like a child, reasoning like a child. But in a, health, uh, a healthy individual, if you were still saying dada and mama as a 30-year-old, um, th there would be a problem, right? And, and I don't even mean to, to, to make light of that. But, but 
according to, you know, healthy physically and mentally, that would be an issue. Why? Because of the appropriateness of the age. And what Paul is dealing with here, and by the way, when Paul says, I gave up childish ways, that is the same exact word that we see in verse 8 of what will pass away in the age to come. What Paul is dealing with here are an example of two different ages. The age of that which is incomplete and the age of that which is mature, which is perfect, which is complete. That in this age, we are living, we are serving, we are, we are going about as a church family here locally and in our community in a certain way. But this way is not all that there is. There is a greater age to come when that which is incomplete will one day be complete. So while the child may one, is right now playing with monopoly money, right? We realize that our children one day will be having real money. While we right now are living and walking by faith and not by sight, as we'll talk about, one day the day is coming when we will be walking in the sight of the presence of God. I agree with what Tom Schreiner says just in talking about this illustration. The purpose in context is clear. The period of childhood is compared to this present age, this present era, when spiritual gifts like prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are needed. Paul does not demean these gifts in comparing them to childhood, but he does put a temporal limit on them. Just as the days of childhood are temporary, so are the gifts God has given the church. The day of adulthood is coming. The perfect, the consummation, or the completion of all things is on its way. That's the reality we live in. I want to give you a second illustration that Paul gives, and that's the illustration of a mirror. You have the illustration of childhood to compare this age to the one to come, and now you have an illustration of a mirror to compare this age to the one to come. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let's focus on the first part of verse 12, dealing with the mirror. See the illustration of a mirror, and Paul says, for now, he's talking about right now, this present moment. You and I are seated here on November the 6th, 2022, right now, the present time, and we are seeing through a mirror dimly. The word dimly um, it can be translated indirectly, an indirect image. It's the word that we get enigma, an enigma from. You know, what's an enigma? It's like a, rid- a riddle, Right? In fact, isn't Riddler's name uh, something with enigma in it, if you're a Batman fan? What was that? 
Yeah, Edward Enigma. So a, a riddle, it's something that you kind of understand, but it's kind of mysterious. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, uh, uh, God speaks regarding his relationship with Moses. And God says, with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth clearly. And he compares it to other prophets. He says, not in riddles. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same word that's used in our text here. Not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Uh, uh, what, what God is saying to those that were discounting Moses' ministry as the leader of Israel is, I don't speak to you like I speak to Moses. Face to face. And even that was limited. I speak with my other prophets in riddles. In other words, indirectly. God spoke to the prophets in dreams, in visions, but with Moses, he had a conversation. As we read Scripture, as we interpret Scripture, as we seek to understand Scripture, as we exercise our spiritual gifts with one another, we are still seen indirectly in a mirror. We know in part. When I was a kid, um, I used to go around the, uh, the house, and, and I don't even know if I've told, I tell Rachel stories, like, and she says she's already heard them, and I'm like, really? You heard that one too? I guess that comes with, with time, being married. Um, but I don't know if she's heard this one. Um, I used to go around the house sometimes, um, and I thought it was the weirdest thing. It goes back to thinking like a child and reasoning like a child, because it doesn't make a lot of sense right now. Um, but I used to have, there'd be like a hand mirror or kind of a, a mirror you could at least hold in your hand. And I thought it was the coolest thing to go around the house holding the mirror facing upward and trying to walk. Because I would see the reflection of the ceiling and then I would try to walk, and in my childhood mind, it would be kind of scary to take that next step because you have like all the contours of the roof. And it's almost like in your mind, you're thinking like you're walking uh, in the, uh, on the unevenness of the ceiling as you're simply walking on the ground. Does that, anybody else have, have a story like that? I challenge you today, especially if you're a kid, um, go home and get your hand mirror or whatever, it is, uh, whatever mirror that you can hold up and try it. It's kind of fun. I might try it again. It's been a long time. But that's seen indirectly, isn't it? I'm, look, I'm not looking at the roof. I'm seeing a reflection of the roof. And that reflection is even skewed. And, and, and I'm not embracing full reality of the truth of my surroundings. It's like that in our spiritual life. That we know truth and God's word is truth and it's perfect, but we are of finite minds and we are still affected by the fall. And man, the things that we do know, the things that we do understand, they are such comforts to our hearts. They give us the light to move forward. But man, a greater day of revelation is coming.
That's what we're living for. We don't get discouraged, or we do get discouraged, but we shouldn't sit in our discouragement in this age because we know the better one is coming. God is even using our weaknesses, our failures, our sins to prepare us for eternity. We are limited this side of eternity. But a day of fullness is coming. Why do we know that? Verse 12 says, I know in part, but then. So contrast now and then. Beginning of verse 12, Paul says, here's the reality right now. But then, face to face. I'm looking at an indirect image right now, but man, the day's coming when I will look at Jesus face to face. And then he presents another now-then situation. I know partially right now, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Man, can you imagine what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face? Seriously. We know we will, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The result of this hope is that everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Not only that, but the text says that, man, not only will we see Jesus face to face, but we will one day know fully, even as we have been fully known. There will one day be full knowledge. To have full knowledge doesn't mean that we're going to be like God. We're going to be omniscient and know all things. Listen, there are going to be things that we know deeper and deeper about. The beauty, the the love of God, the heart of God, the reality of God's greatness. We are going to be learning these things in deeper ways throughout eternity. Because who he is is infinite. It's not saying that we're just going to... We're omniscient like God. No, but spiritual truth will no longer be veiled. I like the illustration. Uh, Follow along. Andy Nacelli says this. Paul does not mean that we will be omniscient like God. Rather, what hinders us from knowing Him more fully now, namely sin and its effects on how we think and feel, will no longer hinder us. Our knowledge now versus our knowledge then will be like the difference, and get this, I like this, this analogy, the difference between, between being outside in pitch darkness with a flashlight versus being outside when the sun is brightly shining. Isn't that a big difference? The flashlight helps. You navigate your way. But how much easier in the daytime When the sun rises, we do not need the flashlight anymore, just as we will not need spiritual gifts such as tongues and prophecy. You see, Paul continually is emphasizing his point to this church. You guys are seeking all of these things as if it is the end-all, be-all. And you're doing it with a lack of love, and you are forgetting what is eternal. 
You are substituting the eternal for the temporal. And don't we do that in so many areas of our lives, whether it's dealing with spiritual gifts or whether it is dealing with what is right in front of us today, what is on our minds, what we have lived for this past week, what we are hoping to get out of certain relationships. We are substituting the eternal for the temporal, and man, it's a shame. We shall know fully, and man, I take great comfort in that last phrase, even as I have been fully known. You see, one day we will know God more. Our minds won't be, so effect, won't be so limited. Sin is not is not reigning in our bodies. It's not hindering us. We'll have our glorified bodies. We'll see Jesus face to face. And one day we will know God more fully. But guess what? God knows us to the full extent right now. Is that a comfort to you? I know it is to me. Jeremiah 1 5, Psalm 139 says that God knew us and formed us before we were even born. Matthew chapter 10 says he knows the very hairs on our heads. And I'm not going to give that overused joke. For some people, it's easier than others to know. He knows, Psalm 139, verse 2, did you know that God knows your thoughts before you even think them? God knows us inside and out. He knows our sins. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our failures. He knows our strengths. He knows our joys. He knows our delights. He knows the things that we, that we fear. He knows the things that... We revel in. Man, if your heart is bent towards God, that is such a comfort. If you are living for self, maybe not so much. But where the comfort for all believers is, is that no matter if we are living for self or we are living for God, God knows us fully, God knows us intimately, and we have God's favor not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ. That is our Heavenly Father. We are fully known. And we look forward to the day when we shall know fully. But as we conclude, not only do we see this contrast that the partial will pass away, Not only do we see the reality, we shall one day fully see and know, but we end chapter 13 as Paul concludes by once again showing us love is the greatest. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. A couple different ways that you can take verse 13 really the truth does not change much, but some people say the now is like in verse 12, that it's talking about right now in the present. So faith, hope, and love abide right now, but among faith, hope, and love, 
Only love is going to endure. The greatest of these is love because it endures. Other people take that word now to say, no, that's like a transitional word. So like you're giving instructions. So you turn this, and uh, now you, you have to understand that, and it's more of a logical transition. So Paul, some people say Paul is logically saying faith, hope, and love abide. These three things are what's eternal. They're what we're to strive for. And the greatest of those three things is love. I think there's truth in, bo- in, in both of those viewpoints. Faith, hope, and love. When it, is our faith in God really ever going to cease? We're ever going to stop having faith in God? No. But yet that faith will look different. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7? We walk by faith and not by sight. What makes faith so powerful? That we have faith in Christ, in Christ alone. We have faith in God as our eternal refuge, even though our eyes do not see what our hearts know. That's what makes faith, faith. And one day we will see Our sight will no longer be blind. So the dynamic of faith will look different, but faith will remain in our one true God. Is God calling you to walk by faith in a specific area this morning? Realize that this faith is going to be an extension, though it will be different, In eternity, yet for all eternity, we are clinging to the one and only refuge that we ever could. Paul also mentions hope. Hope that God will complete His promises and bring full restoration. Now Paul says in Romans 8, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So again, hope is going to look different in eternity, but can we ever really say that our hope stops resting in God? But then we get to love, and we see this reality of love for God and one another. And Paul says, the greatest of these is love. Love stands above them all. Why? Because love is foundational to all of these things and will continue relationally forever. We love God now. And that love for God and the reality of God's love for us we carry with us into eternity. We love each other now. And listen, we're not going to be in heaven. We're not going to kind of just be isolated there all by ourselves. No, we are one big, it will one day be Christians all over the globe that are together in perfect unity and our love for one another is going to carry on just as it has only in a magnified way sense that is unlimited by sin. You see, 
as one person said, love receives preeminence because it is the goal and the aim of faith and hope. Everything points back to love. So as we close today, I want to ask you, are you clinging to what truly matters? Man, are you living a Christian life that is just like this sense of independence that, yeah, I'm a, I go to church, but I don't really need the church. They don't really need me. You know, my walk with God, is, it's just my personal business. If we are followers of Christ, we are called to love as Jesus. And that love of God is a vertical relationship and it is a horizontal relationship. Love never fails. Love endures. Love is eternal. Love is eternal.